All right, if you want to turn to Esther 8, we'll be there. We're going to, Lord willing, finish Esther today. About two chapters. Um, and it will appear that this book ends with a very satisfying, satisfactory ending, a resolution. Uh, we already perhaps began to feel that last week with Haman, um, seeing Haman, all of the evil that Haman had planned coming back on his head. And in the immediate constant context of this book, if you were to just zoom in and consider this story and how it's being told, uh, this seems like a very satisfying ending. And one of my purposes today is to convince you that that's not the case, that this is not a very satisfying, satisfactory ending. So we're going to read the story. Um, I'm tempted to just sum up what happens uh, in, in the rest of this, but uh, I, I want to let God's word speak and do its work. So we're going to read through this. I'll pause here and there to, to point out a few things, but we're going to read through the text. So starting at chapter, th- uh, chapter 8, Esther 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So this edict um, contains much of the same language as the first edict. Uh, The first edict that was conceived by Haman to go against the Jews and to essentially annihilate all Jews everywhere, uh, that edict had commanded the people throughout the Persian Empire to kill, destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, 
including women and children. This second one allows the Jews to do the same to all who would attack them, and on this same day. The date is the same, on this very same day. And, and so this appears to be about self-defense, right? They are allowed to defend themselves, although, as we'll see, Esther will take it seemingly beyond a mere, mere self-defense. Now, you might wonder, why not just cancel the first edict and maybe limit some bloodshed? Well, as the text says, an edict written with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Uh, I also imagine uh, surely it, was hard, it, it would have been difficult to ensure that everyone got the second message and that there was no, no bloodshed merely from the first one. And so this edict empowers the Jews to act in self-defense and defend themselves against anyone who is acting out this, the first edict. Going on, verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So notice the, the drastic turnaround of events. Right? Everything is now going the way of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. After being threatened to extinction, after wallowing in, in, in mourning and um, sackcloth and ashes, because their enemies seem to be about to gain victory over them, they have now come out on top. Mordecai is honored in the capital of Susa. The Jews have a holiday, a feast of light, gladness, joy, and honor. This is beginning to seem like a very satisfactory ending. Things are coming together well. It continues. Chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So Mordecai is a hero. He begins to get recognized as a hero, with the honor of a hero. Verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandantha and Dalphin and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vaisatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemies of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, 
In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. A few more verses here. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th, month of the di- uh, 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages, those out, out from Susa who live in the rural towns, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Now, I've said this before, but the author of Esther doesn't let us in on the motives of the characters, of, of the individuals in the story. Doesn't tell us anything about why they are doing what they're doing, and doesn't tell us really anything about the morality of what they do. We aren't really given much to think about, is this right or is this wrong? And simply because we are reading this as scripture, as God's word, doesn't mean that we have to do that. Doesn't mean that we just find the, what I mean is that we aren't supposed to merely find the good guys and say what they do is right and then the enemies here, what they do is wrong. We've already seen that this is clearly not the case. Esther and Mordecai have done numerous questionable at best things and some not right things, clearly. And here throughout this, their motives continue to be questionable at best. So how are we to view Esther's seeming bloodthirst for destroying the enemies of the Jews? Uh, Note that this isn't a command of God. God, you know, there are times in Scripture where God commands the Israelites to go to war in order to as a means of his judgment on on an idolatrous and evil people. This is not one of those times. It's possible that this is merely self-defense. We're told that there are people who hated them, but Esther wants this day extended, another day of this, and hate is not justification for murder. Again, the author doesn't really resolve these questions for us. Doesn't even attempt to. That's not the point. But at the very least, as we read this, we don't have to assume that everything Esther and Mordecai do or everything that contributes to God's purposes coming about is good and right. The fact is that we have no evidence that Esther and Mordecai are great examples of faith. They never mention God, and while this may simply be a literary decision by the author, um, we don't really have any evidence. Nothing stands out clearly demonstrating their great faith and devotion. They're clearly devoted to their people. We can't really say whether they're devoted to God or not. 
But the real reason for this book is seemingly explained in the last section. So the last, last few verses here. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before their king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hazuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. And just a few more verses, chapter 10 here. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's the end of the book. So we learn here that this is written, at least from the human standpoint, to explain the origin of this festival, this holiday called Purim. Purim was and continues to be a festival uh, conceived and commanded not by God, but by Mordecai and Esther for the Jewish people and their descendants. This is the only mention of it we have in the Bible. And as, as we saw last week, it's a festival that Jews continue to keep to this day. And it's one that is not particularly religious. It is more of an ethnic national holiday um, as, as the Jews remember how they were saved as they honor, Morde as not Mo yes, honor Mordecai and celebrate the downfall of Haman. Now, the question before us today, as we wrap up this book, as we consider the, the, the story and, and the celebration and relief that comes at the end of the story in what seems to be like a completely satisfying ending, the question is, how do we read this as Christians? 
And how do we read this in light of the, you know, if we zoom out, how do we read this in light of Scripture as a whole? Certainly, there are good Christian reasons to celebrate the preservation of the Jews. If this had not happened, we would not have a Savior. God, God, God would not have been faithful to his promises. God was preserving this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and bringing a Savior through this people. So there's certainly reasons to be thankful for that and celebrate that. But if we are reading this through the lens of God's grand plan of Scripture, of, of salvation, and through the lens of all of Scripture as a whole, if we zoom out, this moment in time of celebration loses a lot of its luster. And I contend that we should not be satisfied with it. And to show you what I mean, I want to go first back in Scripture to something Moses said, and then forward in Scripture to something Paul said. So first, we're going to go back to Deuteronomy 8, where Moses speaks to the Israelites, this same people, God's covenant people, just before they enter into the promised land that God was giving them. So in Deuteronomy 8, starting at chapter 11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Go down a few verses to 19. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. When you read the Old Testament and you start to observe the relationship of God's people, of the Jews, to God, you, you, you notice a pattern. So God will rescue his people from their enemies out of Egypt, you know, time and again, and he'll bless them, he'll, he'll make them promises, he'll, he'll do all these great things for them. After a while of experiencing his protection and his provision, the people will become complacent. And they'll start to turn their hearts from worshiping God to worshiping idols. God will then do what he said he would do and, and bring in some sort of discipline, punishment. They will eventually cry out in repentance and sorrow and cry out to God for help. And then God will hear and respond and begin to bless them again, and the cycle continues. Reading the Old Testament is incredibly frustrating. It doesn't give you much hope for mankind. Because if these are the people of God, the people that God has made a covenant with, called to himself, given his law, and this is how they're doing, what is the hope of the rest of the people? And so in a sense... The end of the book of Esther is just one more chapter in this repeated, pat repeated pattern. It seems to be a high point, but we know where high points lead to. And we know that this is not the last one. Everything is not just smooth and dandy from this point on. And even this instance of God intervening and rescuing his people doesn't really seem to be about the people genuinely repenting and turning, crying out to him, it seems more about just God's providence to come in and do 
something for his purposes. The book of Malachi is, seems to be written about the same time as Esther, and we know from the book of Malachi that things do not get better, that the people's hearts are not faithful, that the cycle continues, and God calls out the Israelites for being, and their priests, for profaning and despising his name. So just in the Old Testament alone, before Jesus, we have reason to be suspect of this high point. And then we turn to the New Testament, and this is confirmed. So I want to jump to Romans 1 through 3 and just look at a few things there. As you may know, the purpose of Romans 1 through 3 is to show that all humanity, both non-Jews, Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews, are in active rebellion against God, and rightly under his wrath, unless something is done. And so Romans 1 aims to show that this is true of Gentiles, of non-Jews. says this, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So in other words, God has made himself known in his world, in his creation. He's revealed something of himself just in creating the world. And it is the duty, it is incumbent on every man and woman to acknowledge that, to acknowledge God as creator, to worship him. And not doing so is suppressing this truth is suppressing the fundamental truth at the heart of all reality, at the heart of this world. And the result is that we are objects of God's wrath. And so this is true of the Persians, King Ahasuerus. This is true of us apart from Christ. Uh, There's no hope in being irreligious, in just figuring out our own God. There's, you know, You can look at the Jews and say, well, they they didn't really get it right, but there's no hope outside of that. There's no hope in going our own way, creating God in our own image. By nature, we are objects of God's wrath because we've rejected God in various ways. Romans 2, then, makes a somewhat surprising turn and says, actually, this is the same of the Jews the people that God had made a covenant with and given his law. Uh, The the fact that they were the people of God, the recipients of the covenant and the law in the temple where God dwelt among them, wasn't enough. So chapter 2, verse 23, you who boast in the law, you, you who say, like, we have the law, we are the people that God made this covenant with, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And go down a few verses in chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then, as you may know, it goes into a long list of Old Testament quotes to prove that every mouth is stopped and the whole world held accountable to God that every mouth is stopped. What that means is there's no, ex- there's no excusing, there's no justifying, there's no yes, but. 
every mouth, every individual is accountable to God. So in the grand scheme of things, as we look across the landscape of what God is up to in this world, Esther and Mordecai and the Jews, though celebrating in this moment, in Paul's words, are no better off than the godless Persians around them, in and of themselves, are no better off than Haman. Not only would there continue to be enemies coming from outside, there would be more enemies to come besides the Persians. Their own faithlessness and idolatry and coldness to God would be their worst enemy. And so we cannot rest content that Haman is dead. The gospel is not Haman is dead. The gospel is not we have defeated those who hate us. Because we can be rescued from the enemies out there, from those who might hurt us and persecute us and, and dismiss us, but remain unchanged and rebellious at heart, cold and indifferent to God. We can be saved from all of the ills and harms from the outside and still be just as much a rebellious, hardened sinner before God. And so we can't be content for God to provide merely temporary relief in our lives, to merely approach God as a lifeline when we need help, but otherwise maintain hearts that ignore him. We need a greater salvation than this. We need a salvation that does more than this, that goes deeper, that lasts longer. And this is the case because the threat against us is much greater than the threat of Haman, than the threat of being physically killed. Remember Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Commentator Karen Jobes writes, salvation necessarily implies destruction. And you have to be saved from something. Salvation's deep, deepest significance is that people are actually saved from something both terrible and real. And that something is the wrath of God directed toward their sin and evil. We can tend to want to downplay God's wrath. And certainly it can be overemphasized if we aren't equally, if not more so, talking about his compassion towards those whom he would have wrath on if left unchanged. But God's wrath is a clearly attested to in Scripture. And downplaying it doesn't make him greater. It, it, it makes him less desirable, less great, less worthy of worship. God's wrath is an outflowing of his commitment to what is right and true and just. And it comes about not just because God is out there being like, oh, who can I be wrathful against today, but because of our sin. His wrath is, is a response to who he is and what we do before him, which is not right. God is not out there just looking for an excuse to be angry and wrathful. Except in much, we, are actually, we are told that he's slow to anger, rich in mercy, overflowing in mercy and compassion. But in a God-centered world, 
in a world that is created to display the glory and perfections of who God is, our sinful rebellion against him, our coldness to him, our love of self over love of God, leads, calls for justice and judgment. Our mouths are stopped. But thankfully, that is not the last word on our condition or the last word of God's character. And so Romans, you know, you don't, you don't have to go very much further in Romans. Romans 3.21 begins with uh, what some call one of the great buts in Scripture. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, apart from either being the people who have the law or were given the law, or apart from attempts to perfectly obey the law. No, that's not how it's going to work. Although the law and the prophets, that is another way of saying just Scripture, bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, that is, this applies to both Jews and Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the blood of Christ shed for our sins. The love of God poured out for us sacrificially in Jesus is the answer. And in this, we have a greater salvation than what Esther and Mordecai, with God's hand, were able to bring about for the Jews. The salvation that God offers us is much more perfect, much longer lasting. It doesn't merely save us from enemies without, but saves us from enemies within. Our own sin and God's wrath against it. It doesn't merely change our outward situation, it changes us. It gives us peace with God, it makes us right with God, it cleanses us from all our sin and guilt. It changes our hearts and affections and wills so that we not only obey obey God, but love God and love to obey Him. It gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that we will be His forever that we have an eternal hope. This is the greater salvation that God has been up to from the very beginning, and this is the salvation that all of the lesser, smaller rescues and salvations, including Nestor, are all meant to point to. And our joy today and in the future of this salvation, in this salvation, should be much more much greater than the, than the Jews, the joy of the Jews in Esther's day. Our joy is not merely in God giving us relief, but in God giving us himself and all of his goodness and promises for all eternity. This isn't simply about God hearing our prayers and giving us some temporary help, but God giving us himself. We have every reason to rejoice, not just once a year or twice a year on a, on a holiday, but every day to be always rejoicing, as Paul says. We have a much greater salvation. Though the threat against us was much greater as well, and God has not left us there, but intervened and given us a great and perfect salvation, which was himself. Let's pray.